So that's quite the psalm to start off with when you're the new guy in town. Um, yeah, so uh, my name's Alex Tuckness, and uh, I'm one of the elders at uh, Cornerstone Church uh, down in Ames, Iowa, and uh, I've had the privilege of getting to spend a lot of time with you guys this weekend, uh, doing some equipping stuff on Friday and Saturday, and uh, it is just a joy and a pleasure for me every time I get to come here um, for a couple of reasons. One is I think there's like five or six different rounds of connection groups that there's somebody from that group who's here uh, at your church, and so uh, we always, you know, enjoy getting to see people. There's other people who uh, you know, spent some time in Ames uh, before they made it up to the Twin Cities, and it's always great to, uh, to reconnect. Um, but it's also just so exciting for me to see what God is doing in this church. I mean, like getting to see the pictures of all those people getting baptized and the evidence of the way the Spirit of God is moving in you. Uh, it is just a privilege to get to partner with you and, and be a small part of what God is doing here. So I hope you guys are excited and encouraged about what God is doing. Uh, so Psalm 58, like why pick that psalm? So I'm going to go out on a whim. My hunch is there may not be anyone here who's actually heard a Psalm 58 sermon before, right? Uh, you know, most of the time when you get to the part about like dipping your feet in blood, people get a little squeamish, understandably, right? So, so why talk about this psalm today? Well, you guys are going through a whole study of the book of Psalms, and there's a lot of different types of Psalms. And uh, the book of Psalms has been one of the most important books for me in my own spiritual journey and spiritual development. Uh, and I really take seriously what it says, right, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for us as we're trying to learn how to live lives of godliness. And so I think about the Psalms that are hard for me to know what to do with. Right? Because there's something in them, even though they're hard to know what to do with, that God wants me to take from it. So this is something that I have, uh, have wrestled with for a long time. So I picked Psalm 58 uh, as one of the best examples of what's called an imprecatory psalm. That's a fancy word for like when you're asking God to bring vengeance on your enemies. Right? That's, that's what uh, these are. They're sometimes called psalms of cursing. So these psalms of cursing, how do we think about them and what do we do with them because Psalm 58 is a stark one but there's a lot of these in the Psalms right if you if you read through all of them and some of them are mixed in with other Psalms that we otherwise like and we get to this part of the Psalm and we're not sure quite what to do with it right so like some of you are you know fans of Psalm 63 Psalm 63 starts out God you are my God I eagerly seek you and there's like eight beautiful verses and then the psalmist starts talking about his enemies being food for jackals, right? The, the food for jackals part never gets cross-stitched anywhere, right? Um, you know, or Psalm 139.1, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, right? And this is a beautiful picture of how God, even from the womb, right, has known who we are. And you get to the end of Psalm 139 and he's saying, verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, Right? And sometimes we kind of like just edit that part out, but that's part of the psalm. You know, another famous one, Psalm 137, is a beautiful lament of people who are living in exile in Babylon. 
and they're lamenting, you know, not being in Jerusalem. But the end of the psalm is asking God to slay the children of the Babylonians. Right? These are, these are like graphic psalms. So what do we do with them? Um, one of the things that uh, is interesting to me is there's this tension. Right? So uh, one of the things I, I did a number of years ago is I decided I was going to try to memorize one psalm of each type of psalm, right? So there's different types. There's psalms of confession, psalms of praise. So at some point, I was like, I got to pick one of these. I actually picked Psalm 58 because it seemed about as imprecatory as they get. And uh, it was a challenge for me to know, how do I pray this as a Christian? So the translation I memorized it in said in verse 10, the righteous will be glad when they are avenged. You know, I think the ESV is vengeance, right? How do I, as a Christian who's been called to love my enemies, reconcile all this, like, avenge me stuff, right, that I see in the Psalms? So, like, that's one challenge that many people have. But I also think that there's many people in culture who actually have a different issue, and that is they see all of the injustice that exists in the world and they are desperate for someone who will actually come and get rid of the injustice and set things right, right? So think about all of the racial injustice. Think about injustices against the unborn. Think about Christians who are being martyred for their faith around the world, right? All of these are examples of injustice. And so there's a part of us that wants a God who is gonna do something about those injustices, right? So, so that's part of the tension as well. So one of the things like thinking about this tension that occurred to me, right? These are the least popular Psalms, but in our culture, they're the most popular movies. Ever thought about this? Like I read, you know, when will you avenge me God? And I get nervous and people buy like millions of tickets to see Avengers movies. Right? So there's something in popular culture where we want someone who is powerful enough to stop the person who wants to say, like, destroy the earth or, like, half of all sentient beings in the universe. And as they're powerful enough to stop this evil, we also want them to be a little angry about it. Right? You know, if, if someone is trying to destroy the planet or half the sentient beings in the universe, right, we want them to be, like... There's something that should anger us about those kinds of acts of evil and injustice, right? And, and the Psalms of Lament tap into that because part of what they do is they help us to have a right understanding of anger. So anger isn't, according to the scriptures, always bad, right? There's, there's instances, I think, where we see Jesus angry. But the problem is we as sinful human beings in our frailty and our flesh rarely use our anger very well, right? We, we easily go into pride and self-righteousness and hatred and other kinds of things that are unhealthy. And so I think psalms like this, in part, help us learn how to channel our anger uh, and to, to bring that before Christ. So what I want to do as we look at Psalm 58 today is I want to talk about three different things. So the first one is going to be counterintuitive. Knowing that there is a God who judges the earth helps us love our enemies. Secondly, as we think about how Jesus would have prayed this psalm, right, and, and some of what we learn from the New Testament that provides a greater theological context for this psalm, 
when we do need an outlet for our anger, right, we can pray this psalm against our true enemy. And we'll think about who our true enemy is. And then third, I want to talk about how this psalm points us toward Christ and understands both him as king, but also as the one who offers us forgiveness. So those are going to be the the three things. So let's start with the first. How does this psalm help us love our enemies here and now? So the very beginning of the psalm, uh, Psalm 58 is attributed to King David, right? And King David is an interesting guy because King David encountered a lot of unjust rulers. And by the way, I think um, unjust political rulers are particularly in view when the psalmist was writing this. You know, he's got the, the line at the very first verse, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods, right? Uh, political rulers in those days would often style themselves as gods and want to be worshipped. You know, we, if you were here on Friday, we are talking about this on Saturday, like King Nebuchadnezzar and, and all the rest of it, right? This kind of pretending to be gods was a common thing, right? So I think those kinds of rulers are in view, which is why the next verse says, do you judge the children of men rightly? Uh, these are people who are in positions to judge, right? These are people who are in positions of authority. And sometimes they're unjust. Well, David experienced various forms of this, right? Um, he experienced King Saul, who often treated him unjustly. But then you've got like the Philistines running around. You've got the Ammonites running around. And one of the things uh, that David is interestingly known for, if we think about it, is David's unwillingness to take vengeance himself on his enemies right so a few examples of this so King Saul treated David unjustly and badly Uh, Saul is like hunting David down to try to kill him and there's this moment in uh, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 24 where David has the opportunity to kill his enemy Right, he's got a sword, Saul, you know, it's, it's gonna, the easiest thing in the world, right, to kill Saul right now, but he restrains himself, he just cuts off a little bit of Saul's garment so he can wave it around and basically say, I could have killed you and I didn't, like, because it would be wrong for me to avenge myself, right? So that's one picture of David. The very next chapter, David gets really angry at this guy named Nabal, and Nabal's a jerk. Right? David has some reasons why he's so angry, but he is so angry, he and his men are riding with their swords right, to kill Nabal. Nabal's wife Abigail comes out and she is able to calm David down. And after he's calmed down, David says to her, thank you, if you had not intervened, I would have avenged myself. Right? He's, he's, he's genuinely grateful that he was stopped from avenging himself. One more example. So a little later in David's life, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, David is having like the worst time ever, right? One of his sons is leading a full-scale revolt against him. He's having to flee his own palace. All kinds of atrocities are being committed against his household. And as like, at his lowest point, as he's like walking along, fleeing for his life with his men who are still loyal to him, there's this guy named Shimei, and Shimei is like, I imagine like David's like down here, and he's like kind of up on a ridge, and he's just like hurling curses at David and throwing rocks at him, 
right? You're like the king and there's this guy up there cursing you and like throwing rocks for like mile after mile, right? And interestingly, he's saying to David, God is avenging the blood of Saul. Like you wronged Saul. Remember the guy David chose not to kill. And so there's these curses and rocks being thrown at David and David's men are like, uh, when can we kill him? Right? The king should not be treated this way. And David says, let him do it. Let him do it. Right? So, so I think, you know, we're told David is a man after God's own heart. I wonder if in some of these moments we are seeing why David was called a man after God's own heart. Because the ability to resist the urge to avenge himself is powerful. How did he do it? Well, I think Psalm 58 is part of how he did it. Because it's not that he was not angry, right? But he was making a conscious decision rather than avenging himself that he was going to leave vengeance to God. And I think that made it easier for him to perform acts of love to Saul and Nabal and all of the rest, right? So that's why I think knowing that there is a God who judges the earth, helps us. And by the way, this, I'm using the example of David, but I think there's a New Testament parallel to this as well. So if you go all the way uh, to the end of the Bible and you look in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, I'm just going to read verses 9 through 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain uh, for, the, uh, for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So these are Christian martyrs who are with Jesus awaiting the day when Jesus comes back and the resurrection is completed and God's enemies are defeated. And they are saying, how long until we are avenged? Right? We were killed for your name, Jesus. How long until we are avenged? And these are people who don't have sin anymore. Right, but they're 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 praying this, and you know who one of the people in this crowd is? This guy named Stephen. Right, if this is the gathering of the martyrs, you know who martyr number one was? Stephen, Book of Acts. And you remember how Stephen died, as people are throwing rocks at him to kill him successfully. He is praying, Father, forgive them. Right? So somehow in this deep sense, the ability to love and ask for God's forgiveness on your enemies is also somehow compatible with wanting God to judge the earth. So here's how I think we can try to make sense of this. Right? When our verse 10 of our passage says, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Do we look at the vengeance of God as something good or as something that is not good. And I think in our culture, 
sometimes there's a tendency to downplay the reality of evil and not acknowledge that there is evil in the world. It is harmful and destructive and someone needs to put a stop to it, right? And so, so we want a judge who will come in and say enough to the wickedness that exists. And so the fact that there is a God who judges the earth is in itself good news. And knowing that there is a God who judges the earth makes it easier for you here and now to actually love your enemies. Because here's how you can think about it. If there is someone who is acting contrary to the word of God, or someone who is oppressing God's church, who is engaging in injustice, you can pray for them. And as, as Stephen did, you can pray, God, forgive them, bring them to repentance, bring them to a place where they align themselves with you. Because here's, here's what's true. One of two things is going to happen. Either they will repent and change their path, and if they do, they're just like you, right? People who have received mercy. But if they refuse to repent, they don't get away with it, right? Those who refuse to repent are going to have to stand before a holy God who will bring wickedness to account. And I think one of the things that makes it hard to love your enemies is this feeling like they're going to get away with it. But they don't get to get away with it. Either they repent or they face the judgment of God. Right? So knowing that there is a God who judges the earth makes it easier for us to not avenge ourselves and instead to try to show love for our enemies. Now, having said that, you may still find a lot of anger in yourself related to the injustices that you see around you or that may have been performed against you individually. And so I want to suggest a different way of praying the psalm, right? This is not exactly what the original psalmist had in mind, but as we read this in light of the New Testament, I think this is a different way of looking at it, right? So I mentioned that the psalmist has in mind, I think, evil rulers, right? Evil political um, figures, right? These are people who judge. I want to notice something about them. If we look closely, their characteristic weapons are violence and lies. Violence and lies. Look again at verses 2 and 3. It says, talking to these evil rulers, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Right? So violence and lies right, are the characteristic means and methods of these unjust rulers. Uh, and if you think about how unjust regimes work, this is pretty true. One, they have the power to kill people. This is the violence. Uh, but they have to justify their violence somehow, and that's where the lies come in. But if we read this in the light of the New Testament, there's a really interesting parallel. right? So when Jesus is talking about the devil... In John chapter 8, verse 44, he says this. He says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father 
of lies. So you notice that? A murderer, that's the violence, and a liar, right? So when Satan is trying to do his work in the world, violence and deceit are at the heart of how Satan tries to bring evil into the world. Now, if we, if we realize that, it starts giving us a different vantage point about understanding who our real enemy actually is, right? Who is our enemy? Now, in, in David's case, as the king of Israel, his enemies are also God's enemies in a sense, right? Israel is unique in that God was actually their king, right? And, and they were God's special people as a political entity. And so when the Philistines or whoever come and they're attacking uh, Israel, there's like a double injustice. One, there's the injustices of the people they're killing that they shouldn't have been killing, right? But there's also an injustice toward God because they are attacking God's people and therefore dishonoring God at the same time. But for us, things are a little different, right? You know, if you were here when we were talking about this on, on Friday and Saturday, we are sojourners and exiles, right? We are people whose true citizenship is in heaven, and we find ourselves passing through here on this earth as we wait for King Jesus to come and reclaim the earth for himself, because our true citizenship is with him in heaven, right? And so as a result, some of the things that we may think of as our true enemies are not really our true enemies, right? So sometimes we might want to think our enemy is another country. Like you could think of like the Nazis during World War II, right? Or maybe Russians during the Cold War, or maybe Russians right now, right, with the war in Ukraine. Or you could think there's a lot of increasing tension between the United States and China right now, right? So you could, you could give it like a nationalistic view of who our enemy is. Uh, in our culture, things are so politically polarized that very often people of the opposing party are often characterized as our enemies, right? In all of these situations, right, there's this tendency to, to think of whoever is in your enemy box and be like, can you believe there are people like that? How, like, how could they even be like that, right? And there's, there's, there's no empathy and there's just a viewing of them as enemies and sometimes you may be right, right? Sometimes there may be literally wrong things that they are doing. And so it's tempting to want to make them the target of your curse, right? God, when will you bring vengeance on them? But if we remember that what they're doing is actually the sort of work that Satan does, I think it reminds us of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Because Ephesians 6, 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is our true enemy. And sometimes we encounter people who Satan has managed to successfully recruit to do a little bit of his work for him. And those people who are doing a little bit of Satan's work for him are not themselves wholly evil, but they are people who have been seduced by his lies. And so 
One way of looking at them is those who have been seduced by the lies of Satan are actually people we should have pity for more than anger. Right? That is a, a, a desperate situation to be in. And we should reserve our anger for the one who does the tempting. Right? For Satan himself. Right? There's, there's an interesting uh, passage in one of C.S. Lewis's books, Perilandra. Uh, where there's this guy named Ransom, and he finds himself fighting this guy, only it's not really a guy, it's basically a demon that has fully and irrevocably taken possession of a human body, right? So he's basically fighting a demon, and as he's fighting this demon, like in a fist fight, uh, he feels something welling up inside of him that is like hatred, and this little light bulb goes on, and he's like, oh, this is what hatred was created for. Right? Every other time in my life I've hated something, something felt wrong because I knew the thing I was hating wasn't purely evil. Hatred was actually designed for things that are purely evil. Right? And, and, and Satan was, is what exemplifies that. So, so here's the second thing we see from these psalms. They give us language for praying against our enemies that when we read them in the light of the New Testament, we can reframe who our enemy is. And sometimes we need an outlet for our anger. And I would encourage you, pray with as much anger as you can muster against Satan and his work, wanting him to be thwarted and his work to be completely destroyed. Now, as we do that, that's going to lead to our third point, which is how this psalm points us toward Christ. So one of the things I've reflected on Uh, is that the Psalms were Jesus's prayer book, right? As Jesus is growing up in those 30 years before he begins his public ministry, Jesus is reading all of these and he's praying all of these. So it's an interesting question to like ask yourself, how would Jesus have read and prayed this Psalm? And as Christians who are in Christ, right, who now have our identity in Christ, there's a sense in which In Christ, we get to pray these things along with Jesus and learn from him about how to pray them well. Right? So it's an interesting question to ask yourself about any psalm. Like, how would Jesus have prayed this? And one of the things that's really interesting about this psalm, right, as you go through it, is the psalm is assuming this contrast between a righteous person who prays the psalm and wicked, unrighteous people who receive God's vengeance. Right? There's this, this you know, uh, distinction between the two, which is why right, we get verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He, the righteous person, will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Right? So the assumption is a righteous person prays the psalm, and then a wicked person is destroyed and receives the vengeance of God. So as Jesus is praying this psalm and he's meditating on this psalm, I think at some point Jesus thinks, I'm righteous. Like the people who are opposing my ministry, the the people who stand against me are in the wrong. They are wicked. I am righteous. So Jesus, in a unique way, would be fully justified in praying this psalm. Because he is fully righteous, there is no hint of wickedness in him. And if Jesus had prayed this psalm, everyone but him on the planet is destroyed. 
right? Because everyone on the planet except him has the power of sin at work in them. Everyone on the planet except him is at some level guilty of wickedness before a holy God. And so Jesus, I think, he looks at Psalm 58 and he makes a decision that instead of as a righteous man calling down God's vengeance so that he can bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked, he says to his heavenly father, I will shed my righteous blood so that those who are wicked can be washed and made clean. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That we who deserved the vengeance of God, instead, by his blood shed for us on a cross, can actually be made white and clean and stand unafraid and unashamed before the throne of God, right? So psalms of cursing are actually a reminder that draw us near to Jesus, But they draw us near to Jesus in a second way. And I want to talk about this too. I think, like David, one of the things that made it easier for Jesus to pray this psalm mercifully, right, rather than taking vengeance on his enemies, is knowing that he was going to come back again. And in his patience and his mercy, he's given 2,000 years and counting for those who have rejected him to repent. But at the end of the day, when Jesus comes back again, he is going to come back as the true avenger. Right? So if you go to Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 19 describes at the end of the age, Jesus coming back to earth on a white horse, right? This is kind of the imagery of a conqueror. And basically Jesus saying to all the evil that is still in the world, enough, it stops now. And there will never be another wicked or evil act performed on the earth again once Jesus has fully inaugurated his reign on this earth. And so even Jesus as he is on the cross, knows that at the end of the day, people have two choices. If they will repent and submit to his rule, there is forgiveness and mercy for them, and they can be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. But at the end of the day, if to the end they refuse grace, they are going to be driven out of his presence forever. That's what hell is. Right? They're going to be driven out of his presence forever and never again able to harm his children, his people. There's a, there's a book I uh, read a few years ago uh, by Joshua Ryan Butler called Skeletons in God's Closet. And he, he is kind of meditating on how to make sense of what the Bible says about heaven and hell and judgment and vengeance and all of these things that make us uncomfortable today. And one of the things he said uh, in the book I thought was really interesting. He said, sometimes the way we think about the end of the age is that we're here on earth, and earth is kind of neutral, and then depending on which religious choices we make, when we die, we go to heaven or we go to hell. And he said, 
it's interesting that you never actually find heaven and hell paired with each other anywhere in the Bible. The Bible does talk about hell and it does talk about heaven, but what you see paired together typically is heaven and earth. Right? So think about it this way. Heaven is where the reign of God and the presence of God are full and manifest. Hell is rebellion against God and separation from God's presence, right? That's heaven and hell. Earth right now is a battleground where heaven and hell are in conflict with each other. That's why, by the way, like in the book of James, when he's talking about the evil of the human tongue, he describes human speech as a power set on fire by hell. Right, Satan and the power of hell are already at work in our world, and that's what sin is. And right now, we live in the middle of that struggle. But the good news is that when Jesus comes back, Revelation 19 style, he is going to once and for all drive all of the evil out of his presence, and his kingdom will be fully established, and we will get to live with him forever. So, Imprecatory psalms, psalms of cursing, encourage us because they remind us that in the end, God is going to establish his kingdom. And those who use wickedness and deceit and violence to harm others don't get to do it forever. The world, this earth, is going to be made whole. Jesus is going to reclaim it, and his children are going to get to enjoy it with him in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. Knowing that helps us to respond patiently, kindly, and gently with love to those who oppose us, even to those who have harmed us, and to love others as we imitate the love Jesus showed for us. And it helps us when we do have that anger and that frustration to try to direct our anger and frustration to the true enemy, Satan, whom Jesus is going to defeat forever and whose fate was already sealed when he rose from dead on the third day. So as we close, my encouragement to you is this. There are people here in this room I know who have experienced injustice personally. Right? This is a personal thing for you. There's others in this room who are grieved by the injustices that exist in our world. And there are people in here who are also grieved under the weight of your own sin and how that stands before a holy God. Know that Jesus loves you. And Jesus chose to shed his blood to give time for us to repent and come to him while also knowing that he is coming back and he will judge the earth. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to earth so that we who are wicked could receive mercy. Thank you that although he could with all righteousness have called down vengeance upon us. Instead, in his mercy, he shed his own blood so that sinful people 
can be made right with a holy God. And so when we encounter evil in our world, let us remember that the human beings we see are people like us, people who struggle with sin and who need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Give us love and kindness toward them. Even God, as we pray for the day to come soon, when Satan and all of the forces of evil are defeated forever, and all those who will not submit to your reign and rule Jesus are banished eternally from your sight so that the earth is made new and we can dwell with you, Jesus, forever and ever. Pray this in Jesus' name.